Good morning. Please join me as we read 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cost us prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with my hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. I think it's uh, self-evident to all of us that someone's last words are incredibly important and significant and even unique. Uh, While some, I think, have jested and made sport with that unique opportunity uh, to speak thoughtfully before they die. Most of us weigh, most of us would weigh what we would say. We'd think about those to whom we speak. We'd look back in our life. We'd, we'd look to those that we love, maybe some expression of, of love or joy for them, or maybe impart some piece of wisdom or even to share our faith. You know, Robert the Bruce, as he is affectionately known, his last recorded words were, Now God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfast with you, and I shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine the hope that his children drew from that kind of thing. Last words are important. In fact, Matthew Henry, the great preacher uh, of the 17th century, said this, When we find death approaching, we should endeavor both to honor God and to edify those about us with our last words. Let those who have had long experience with God's goodness and peacefulness of wisdom's ways, when they come to finish their course, let them leave a record of that experience and bear their testimony to the truth of the promise. So I think David's going to do this in his last words. These are the last words. We've kind of ended this series on David. We've seen David hit great heights of of spiritual strength, We've seen him hit great lows of personal and moral failure. We've seen him have the joy of repentance, and we've seen him bear the burdens of the consequences of his sin. We've seen this great king be exiled from his own kingdom and yet restored again. This is the end of a 40-year reign. We come to this last four chapters, 21 to 24, and when you look at these chapters, it's written in the form of a chiasm, which is, which is a literary device where, where the, the chronological order of things is secondary. Uh, the writer is trying to bring the centerpiece to be the point of discussion and thought. And the centerpiece of this section is chapters 22 and 23. They're both songs that David wrote. 22 is a song about God's grace in preserving and delivering the kingdom. Psalm 23, or the first seven verses, is a song of David thanking God for how he's going to complete the kingdom. These technically aren't David's last words, you might know. 
uh, there are other last words. So which last are the last ones? Well, these are the last official or public words. Uh, you, you see it when he says that this is an oracle of David. The word oracle was a word that was used by the prophets. David is giving us a message from God. He's saying this is the last public message of God that I'm giving to you. So we find David here, he's on the precipice of his life. He's looking back over his life and he's looking to where his life is going. It's a unique opportunity that maybe many of us will have. And the way the passage is broken down, or at least I'd submit to you, is that he's looking back. In verse 1, he's going to take a look back at all that God had done for him. And then in verses 2 through 7, it's all that God has promised to do for him. So he's looking back and he's looking forward. And we'll look at the sermon in those two ways. So let's start with looking back. Look in verse 1. The passage is saturated in the grace of God. He says that he's the son of Jesse. You notice he doesn't say, I'm the son of Abraham, I'm the son of Moses, I'm the son of Noah. I mean, Jesse was an unknown. The only way we know Jesse is that he was David's father. So, so he kind of came from very obscure background. And the town of Bethlehem was an unknown town, except for maybe its corruption. David's kind of a nobody from nowhere. He's just out living. He, the youngest of all the children of Jesse. Not even seen. Not even, he was overlooked by his father when Samuel came to, of course, ask for his sons. So, so this is David. I, I want you to feel like he's out from the boondocks, but God called him to himself. And that's, a, that's language that every Christian should use a lot. But God, but God. What is God? Well, but God called him from obscurity. But David's looking back and he's saying, who was I that you would have called me? But not just that, God exalted him. Look, at, he says he raised him on high. I mean, God took David from the fields with sheep, delivering food to his brothers, and he raised him to be the king of Israel. He anointed him with the Spirit of God to lead the people of God. I mean, think about that. He exalted this young boy to a place of great prominence over his people. He was also the sweet psalmist of Israel. God equipped him. He didn't just call him and he didn't just exalt him, but he equipped him. He equipped him to be the sweet psalmist. David wrote many of the psalms that were the centerpiece of Israel's worship. I mean, you think about some of his writings. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I mean, how many countless souls have been encouraged by that? I mean, building up faith, encouragement, and comfort. David was used mightily of God, but David knew that. So when David was going to take a look back at his life, at the very end, when he reflected on his life, what did he focus on? He's not talking about military exploits. He didn't talk about, about Goliath. He didn't talk about his political accomplishments. He didn't talk about his financial successes. What's he go to? He goes to write to what God has done for him in grace. I mean, he goes to how God is the centerpiece of his relationship, how God has been kind to him, how God has lifted him up. David could have written Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God, who stoops down from on high 
to lift up the poor from the dust and to lift up the needy from the ash heap, to sit them with the princes of the people. I mean, David is overwhelmed with God and all that God... So at the end of his life, his mind is centered on what God had done for him. How often do you reflect on your life? When you, when you kind of sit down and consider all that God has done. Now, I, I realize some of us may think, well, that can lead to kind of a, a death spiral of despair. It, 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 can, it, it can lead to maybe over-scrutinizing and perhaps over-examination. I'm not speaking about that. I'm just, look down the, the quarter. You all ought to know your own histories. What has he done? You know, I think most of us would agree that we speak and we think precious little about our lives. We're distracted. We're always looking forward. We rarely look back. And you know, Socrates had said, the unexamined life is not worth living. When do you examine your life? How do you examine it? If you were to take some time this afternoon and you were to say, I want to examine, I want to think through my life. What is most precious and valuable to me? What do, what do I think about the most? Would it be the success that you've had? Would it be the family that you've raised? Would it be the popularity that you've attained? What would it be? In fact, I would encourage you to do that, to take that time. What would your last words be? If you had to have your last words recorded, what would you say? I think many of us might actually come up a little short. We might think that we have squandered some opportunities. We've, we've lost some We've lost some opportunities that we could have used for God's glory. I read a, um, a book this week, kind of in, in light of this sermon, uh, Ivan Ilyich. I'm not Russian. That was the best swing I could take at it. But it's written by Leo Tolstoy, and it's a short work. It's a short book. It's called a novella. And, and it's about him writing this, this uh, in Russia, the middle class was rising in the late 19th century. And people were getting very excited about the things that they could acquire and the wealth that they could amass and the social standing that they could increase. And so this man by the name of Ivan was just such a man. He got a good education and he began to go up the rungs of the ladder and he went from post to governmental post, making more money, buying bigger houses. And, and you see his life track like many of ours. And then the kind of this incidental accident happens. He's showing this worker how to hang a curtain, and he, and he slips, and he bumps the side. And that's all you read about it. But then increasingly, it becomes more the center of the story, that it's causing more and more pain, and he's more and more distracted. Nobody else seems to really be threatened or concerned with it because they're going up their own rungs. And, and then the doctors can't diagnose it. And his mind becomes more and more focused on that, that he's dying. And, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. He's dying, and he's never given thought to his life. And, and here's what he says in his words. He says, it occurred to him, that, the narrator says, it occurred to him that what had appeared perfectly impossible before, namely that he had not spent his life as he should have done, might after all be true. All of his professional duties and the whole arrangement of his life and of his family, all of his social and official interests, might have all been false. He tried to defend those things to himself and suddenly felt the weakness of what he was defending. But if this is so, he asks, am I leaving this life with the consciousness that I have lost all that was given to me 
and it's impossible to rectify it. I mean, the point comes to this critical point of he realizes he's wasted his life. It's a moving book. I've wasted my life. You may feel that way when you look back at your life. You don't see the eternal value. You haven't considered the things that God has done for you. You've lived your life apart from God, without God at all. And you're overwhelmed by it. What do you do? How do you respond? I would encourage you to consider, even right now, the brevity of your life. The shortness of it. You know, in Psalm, in Psalm 90, we're told to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. See, in numbering our days, it brings a humility to our lives. We realize that the chairs we occupy will be filled again. That the things we do will be forgotten. There's a humility that comes. And there's also a sense of disquiet that comes on our soul over trying to find much of this world. To try to find our, our joy and our pleasure and our meaning and our significance in this world. Uh, there's a sense of repentance that's drawn to us because we realize my days are fast moving. I will stand before God one day. There's a claiming for grace. I need grace to finish this life well. In fact, Psalm 39 is a psalm that I turn to often just to remind myself of this. Psalm 39, the psalmist says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a mere handbreadth, and my life is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely he goes about as a shadow, he heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? This is the critical question. He says, my hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. In other words, when you come to this place, look to Christ. Seek his forgiveness. Ask for grace that your life might matter. Now, J.I. Packer, a current theologian, says, dying well is one of the good works to which Christians are called. It's a good work that we're called to, to die well, to consider our lives, the brevity of the are we living for God? If we were to give our last words, if you were to write your last words this afternoon, what would they be? What would they say? And is your life mirroring that? So that's what David does. He, he takes stock of his life. Now, please don't wait till the last day. Do it now. Consider it now. So he looks back and he, and he sees all that God had done and that was the centerpiece of his thought. Would that not be sweet for us? That when we know that our days are quickly passing, that our minds would become more and more preoccupied with the greatness of God. Don't you want that? I do. I want my mind to be absorbed with that. Where we're going, that my mind would already be there. My body would just catch up later. But then we see in 2 to 7, he begins to look forward. He begins to look forward. Now, now this is David's words are unique because Jacob's last words to his family were to his children. He was blessing them. Moses' last words were to the people of Israel, both encouraging and warning them to walk in a manner worthy of the holiness of God. But look at David's last words. They're different. Uh, they're prophetic. They're prophetic words about all that God would do to bring glory to his kingdom. Notice in verses 2 and 3, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, 
His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, we should be on the edge of our seats. What is he going to say to us? David's not giving us some, some, you know, some dad-type predictions of if you don't do this, this will happen. This is divine wisdom coming to us. And remember, just as Moses could see into the promised land, but he didn't enter it, David, David's going to see this promised king, but he won't experience him. David is speaking about what's to come. David is speaking prophetically. He's speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit about a Messiah to come, a perfect king to come. And look at how he describes him. He's going to describe him as beautiful in 3 and 4. He's going to describe this king and kingdom, his coming as a certainty in verse 5. And then he's going to describe this kingdom as exclusive in 6 and 7. So let's look at each one of those. I'm just looking forward now. David's looking forward in his life. And he sees this king that will come that will be beautiful. Look at what he says there. He goes, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. A just ruler. Just think about that in our current political. A just ruler. One who rules with, with righteousness. There are no shadows. There are no deceit. There's no, there's no corruption. There's no partiality. There's no inequality. There's no special counsels. There's nothing. It's just. It's right. It's honest. It's perfect. It's pure. That is the kind of ruler that God is promising. And he's a ruler that rules in the fear of God. He's not worried about his own name. He's not worried about advancing his own interest, protecting his own name. He rules with God and his glory at the center of all his decisions. I mean, the images of this are beautiful, as he gives to us in verse 4. He will be like the dawn upon the morning light, the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. You know how the, the rays of the morning and the sun kind of dispels the cold darkness of the night? If you've been to the beach on the East Coast and you get up, which I love to do, to get up early and and it's black. And, and then, then all of a sudden these, these shafts of light, and it begins to, to just glow on the horizon. And then more light pours out. And then quickly, and you have to watch it because it happens quick for the horizon, the sun is, it, it almost rises out of the water. And, and it just washes the world in light. And it's like darkness flees. You can't stand before it. I mean, when the light comes, darkness goes. It has nowhere to hide. It just, it just it, it, as if it runs away. That, that this king will bring the light of life to us. Full illumination and wisdom and grace. But not just that. Look at the second image. It's like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You, you know how when we get the spring rains and the dormant grass begins to grow and it gets that... That green, green, if you know what I mean. It gets really green. That, that water soaking in the earth, producing crops, bringing forth food and drink that satisfy us. That this king is going to refresh and restore. He's going to bring life from death. He's going to bring light from darkness. This is a kind of king that we're going to have. And that's what he's telling David. David's at the end of his life. He said, this is the type of king that will come. But not just a beautiful king, a certain king and kingdom. Look in verse 5. In verse 5, he speaks kind of in a way that can be a little confusing. For does not my house stand so with God? 
I, I think what David is doing is he's expressing some of his regret. If this is the type of king that's coming, I haven't been that. David is fully aware of all of his sins. He can't forget them. He is filled to some measure with regret. And he asks God, for does not my house still stand so with you? If this is the king that's coming, will it be for my house? And look at the confidence that he has. He says in verse 5, For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So here David goes back to that promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12, where he says these words. He says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that's why David goes on in verse 5 to say, For will he not cause to prosper <clears throat> all my help? That word is also salvation. All my help and my desire. In other words, here's David. At the end of his life, he knows that he has sinned greatly against God. He's filled with regret. But he rests on the promise of God, that God will yet redeem him. David knows he needs another David to come to save him. And God is assuring him that that kingdom that I've given to you will come forth in glory and certainty, and you will be delivered. So David is resting now in confidence. In the midst of his regret, he's confident because of God's promise in the covenant. He's trusting the promise of God. He's not looking to his own efforts or how he's been restored or how he's done better. He's looking solely to God as being faithful to save. And then thirdly, look at this type of king and kingdom that comes. It's an exclusive kingdom. In other words, it's not going to be welcomed by all. Look in 6, he says, Worthless men are like thorns and they're thrown away. They can't be taken with the hand. You can't handle this. You need an iron shaft or the shaft of a spear to take these thorns and throw them to the fire. In other words, this kingdom is going to come and this kingdom is going to be met with resistance. People won't want this king or his kingdom. And they're going to rebel, they're going to reject, they're going to turn away from it. They're worthless for rejecting such a beautiful king. So this is the promise that David is given by God. It's going to be, yes, yes, a kingdom will come. It will be beautiful. It will be certain. But it will not be embraced by all. So who is this king? Well, surely it's not David. Uh, David's not speaking about himself as this king. David's about to die. And plus, his rule was hardly marked by those things, maybe in part, but not fully. Well, how about all the kings that followed David in succession? King after king. There were some bright spots, but none of them even met the level of David's kingdom. And then by 300 years, the Babylonians came in and crushed Jerusalem, and they took all the people and the, peop and the leaders to uh, Babylon. What's happening to the kingdom? Where's the promise? Well, the prophets hadn't forgotten about it. In Jeremiah 23, we read, Behold, the days are coming. This is right before the exile. Declares the Lord, When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness, same type of language, in the land. Well, God repatriated the people back to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah, but there was no Davidic king put on the throne. So where's the certainty of this, this king that's come? Well, I'd submit to you that this king, this Messiah, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, a son of David, a son of Abraham, but he's different. He's also a son of God. He's a son of God that's come to redeem and restore. That's what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21 when he says, he says this, he appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. 
Now, why did he announce the line from which Joseph came except to remind him? You're a son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This Jesus has come as the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, to deliver us. It's certain, it's sure. But not just that, this, this king is going to bring a beautiful kingdom, and Jesus did. You know, when Jesus stepped on the scene in ministry, he says, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then we see the ministry that Jesus carries out. It's marked by wholeness and healing. It's a beautiful kingdom. Women are valued. Children are considered. The poor are made welcome. The sick are healed. The broken are restored. The, the low are raised up. This is a a glorious kingdom. But it's a kingdom that does come exclusively to those with faith and trust in God. I mean, Jesus' kingdom was met with resistance. You know that. The same thing as David was told by God that the thorns would rise, so they rose. Back to John the Baptist, in preparing the people for the coming of Jesus, says in Matthew 3, his winnowing fork is in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, that the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus himself says in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So you see, Jesus' coming kingdom is the fulfillment of the promise made to David. It came. He inaugurated the kingdom in his coming. Now we live in this age of what theologians call the now and the not yet. Jesus has established his kingdom now. Uh, Acts 1, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, he's ascended to the right hand. He is reigning as king now. But we don't see, it's not yet fully consummated. So we kind of live in this awkward time, you and I. And ever since the ascension, we live in this time of now and not yet. This is a time of warning for us. Jesus Christ will come as a savior, but also a judge. He will come to deliver, but also to destroy. You know, we live in an age where we like fuzzy lines when it comes to truth. Uh, he has no fuzzy lines. He comes as a king to be worshipped. Uh, perhaps you are here uh, or you have a friend that may be ambivalent on one side, perhaps someone else may be antagonistic to the things of Christ. I, I, I would say this is a, a gracious warning to God, to all people, to repent and be reconciled to God. This is a gracious warning that there will be a day when the now will move to the not yet, and the not yet will be now it is being consummated. And for those that have been ambivalent or antagonistic or somewhere in between, that this is the day now to repent of your sins, to turn, to ask for God to forgive you, to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ on the cross. If you have repented of your sins, then this is a time of encouragement for you. This is a time of great encouragement. And, and let me just try to draw three things that you can look forward to, to be encouraged by. As you look forward, number one, you can be looking forward to this joy, to this day with joy-filled anticipation. You can be looking forward to this, 
not yet being complete. Listen, I know that many of you are so harried by life. You're distracted. Maybe it's kids. It's a demanding job. It may be problems or struggles that you're facing. We do live in some very complicated times. To try to wrestle through some of the ethical decisions in life, I mean, it is distracting, it is troubling, it is, it is really mind-engaging. And to think about that day is a hard thing. But, but I want to remind you, that's part of the equipment given to the Christian by the Spirit. To think about that day, to long for that day, to want that. I mean, don't you want a king like this to come? Do you not desire a king to come? When you think about the political landscape and the leaders, whether democracies or dictatorships, don't we find leaders to be always flawed? Aren't they flawed? I mean, and, and look through the history of this world. There's chaos, and then we have a period of order, but then it becomes chaotic again. There's oppression, and then there's peace, but then there's oppression again. It's like, when will we learn? And the reality is we won't learn because we're, we're flawed people needing this king to come. We want a, do you not want a king that would dawn on you like the sun shining on a cloudless morning? That's the king we want. That's the, that's the desire. Our hope and our joy ought to be increasingly, as we age, captivated with the thought of seeing God and seeing his son Christ who saved us. This captivated the earlier Christians. Jonathan Edwards speaks much to the glories of heaven. Let me just quote to you what he wrote. He said, God is the highest good of all the reasonable creatures. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. That is huge to a materialistic culture, what he just said. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands and wives and children, or the company of any, all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. That's why he prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. You know, we are a people that Hebrews speaks about when the writer says, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Uh, we're to be longing for this. This is to be occupying us as we age. Death. It is not death to die for the Christian. Back to Tim Keller, I love the way he writes this. He says, all death can do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. It's all death can do. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great preacher in the mid-20th mid century. He died in 1981. But on February 26, uh, the last thing he wrote, he grabbed a, a, a scrap of paper with a pen, and he wrote these words on it. Now, he was a, a preacher, a great preacher in, in London for years, faithful, used greatly of God. And he wrote this to his wife and his, and his children. He said, don't pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. That's a man that wants to see all that there is to see in God. You don't get to that place if we're not moving in it now. You know, to have that kind of attitude and grasp of life. So at the very end, I don't want to live. I want to live with him forever. So, so, so consider that. 
How often do you think, this is why we need each other in the church. Our minds don't go there, although he has set eternity in the heart of man. Our minds don't go there. We want to encourage one another. The writer of Hebrews said, let us not forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, uh, one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need encouragement. We need to help each other consider these things. We need to help each other lift our minds off the immediacy of our lives, which, by the way, can become a life. I, I mean, the, the immediacy of next week, that can run all the way till we're, we're finished. We want to encourage one another. Okay, the second thing to look forward to for you, the Christian, is the forgiveness that you'll receive because of the promise of God. You can look forward to the, the promise of God in delivering you from all sin. Now listen, David's life was a train wreck. He sinned big and he sinned publicly. And yet he has a confidence that he's saved. Now there are many of us here that struggle with the nature of our sin. We look back at our, our histories and we think, there is no way God could forgive me for this. There is no way, I, I've so out the people around me that, that somehow they can claim some degree of confidence in being reconciled to God. I cannot. There are some of us who are steeped in sin right now, and, and it's undermining that sense of joy that you'll have when you're forgiven. Some of you repeat the same sins over and over again, and you try and you try with greater and greater moral resolve to put it to death. Well, let me encourage you that, that the help we need to rest in this future reconciliation cannot come from within you. Uh, the, the hope that we need has to come from outside of us. It's looking to this covenant. You know, David said, for you made with me a covenant, an eternal, everlasting covenant. We, the Christian, can say the same. For he has made with us a covenant, a new covenant, in the blood of Christ. That for this assurance, we have to go to what Christ has done for us. That Christ has died bearing the wrath of God for our sins, that we might be fully forgiven. It, it isn't rooted in your moral resolve. It's rooted in what Christ has done for us. It's a work outside of us that is applied to us through faith and through repentance, asking God to forgive us of our sins and casting my trust in the work of Christ. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month. It's the reminder of the covenant that God made. So we could say, for with me, you have made an everlasting covenant in the blood of your Son. This is to bring hope and joy to us. This is not a license to sin. If you understand he's died for you, sinning casually is anathema. We don't do that. But when we sin, because we're still in the flesh, we run back to the covenant. He's promised to me. He's promised to me in his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away, but the blood of the Son will, that, that he will sprinkle my, my conscience clean. We, we have to, that's why Christ is so central to the preaching and the life of this church. So I have a dear friend um, whose father was dying, and only had days left to live, and he went into the hospital room. And the father was agitated and upset and very tearful because he was considering 
the relational disharmony that he brought in his family, uh, with his wife, with his children, weeping over it, and all the things that he had done, and all the failures that he had walked in. And he asked the son, can even God forgive me? And the son affirmed that yes, Christ can even forgive you. And thankfully that man died with a peace that yes, God can forgive. Yes, the covenant rooted in Christ alone can forgive. Do you look forward to that day when you can thank Christ for saving you? I mean, do you count on him alone for your salvation? Do you turn to him in the midst of your sin and say, even in sin I can claim you because you promised to me? Can you not, you know, when you sing that great hymn, Rock of Ages, when it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace, and this is important, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It must be Christ. Let's look forward to that. How do we live ready? How do we live in these last days of our lives? We, we look to the covenant, the promise that God has made with us in Christ. And then last and quickly, that we look forward to that day, but we're active in this day. We need to be active in this day. We need to be running this race. You know, every, every runner that starts a race, when he crosses the start line, you know what is on his mind, the finish line. I mean, pilgrims ponder what they pursue, but, but they're active in the journey now. It, it, it's very important. Many of you are, are tired and you're fatigued. You've been involved in ministry for years. You've seen some work of grace. Perhaps you've been frustrated, not seeing more. Uh, some of you may be struggling with slothfulness or laziness. I just don't want to do it. You're struggling with selfishness. Others, perhaps you're struggling with a sense of inadequacy. I don't think I can really do anything for God's kingdom. I'm not sure that I can really be of use. I've, I've heard that time and time and time again. And someone will say, well, I don't know. I, God didn't really give me anything. Please banish that thought. You know, to, to look forward to this day is to be active in his kingdom, serving people, in some ministry, speak to a Christian in here. Ask them to help you. If you don't know where to serve or how to serve, remember we talked last week about the nature of fellowship. The nature of fellowship isn't just the warm and fuzzies I get from my friendships here. The nature of fellowship is what has God given me that I can steward among others to raise them and develop their spiritual good. So we want to run the race as if there is an end. And we want to be active now. We don't want to be so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good. We want to be spiritually minded so that we can be earthly good. Jesus himself said in Hebrews, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so David, is, he's looked back at his life, at what God has done for him. And then he looks forward to what God will do. We need to look forward as well. What will God do for us? Uh, it'll, it'll be a glorious day. 
There is no earthly metaphor to adequately describe the joy that we will have. To be reconciled to God, to be with the author of all things. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That's the old order of things. That's passed away. Behold, a new order has come, he says. That God will dwell with man and man will dwell with God. That's what David was thinking on his last days. May we think about that now so that we think on the last days. May we not waste this life. This is a warning to you. This is an encouragement to you and to me. Let us be serious about the joy that God has for us. Let me just close. You know, John Piper wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Life. And um, in this, he writes about uh, a man that came to faith through the ministry of his father. John Piper's a pastor, or was a, I guess he's still a pastor, not a, a preaching pastor, theologian. Uh, his father was an itinerant minister, preacher. And uh, he shares the story in his father's ministry that one time uh, he was preaching, and it says this. He, here's what he writes. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and he was resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed, and God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it, I've wasted it. May we not waste our lives. We've been given such a glorious example in David. His life of success and failure, yet he finished well. May we do the same. Let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace that the Spirit of God, we need the Spirit, we believe in the Spirit, that the Spirit will bring us to a place of, of great encouragement, maybe conviction, uh, maybe hope. And then I'll pray for just pray for us in a moment.